Business, political, and community leaders are constantly faced with the challenge of how to best impact the behavior of those they lead. Solving big issues for individuals, organizations, and society as a whole requires more than strong-armed efforts to control behavior. World-renowned author and change agent Joseph Grinney reveals a better way to create rapid change and lasting change as he shares the essential components of transformational influence, all on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Well, very pleased to have in the studio with us today, Joseph Grinney, uh, one of the great uh, thinkers and strategists in our country today, uh, not just from a business perspective, but personal relationships uh, and an extraordinary transformational organization called the Other Side Academy that we'll come back uh, to uh, in just a little bit. Uh, Joseph, many people know you uh, through your work with Vital Smarts, uh, your your writing, influencer, crucial conversations, and a, and a host of others. Uh, and so we want to talk about those first as a model and then look at some applications across the country. And then, as I said, we'll dive into this magical place. Uh, People think the Magic Kingdom is in Disneyland. The Magic (laughs) Kingdom is in this place called the Other Side Academy, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, But give us just a a, a quick tee up, kind of uh, your journey uh, to get to the principles of influence. Yeah. So my enduring interest has been human change, which ultimately and maybe inevitably brought me to the Other Side Academy, of course, too. But but change in terms of habits, uh, behavior. And so I've I've wondered for for decades, you know, what what do we know in the social sciences about how to create rapid, profound, sustainable behavior change? And I think one of the reasons it's such an urgent topic for all of us is that most of the social problems that we all lament are ultimately problems of behavior. We often try to size them up as funding problems or policy problems or technology problems. But at the end of the day, it's a human being acting a certain way that either creates or solves the problems we have. And so at Vital Smarts, my my colleagues and I have tried to to ask what what it, what kind of body of knowledge has the social sciences accumulated that would help inform moms and dads, you know, mayors, presidents, business people about how to create the kind of rapid, profound, sustainable behavior change that we all need. Uh, and so, and so often we we do just jump to. Is it a funding problem? Is it a policy problem? Uh, it's a lot of the pointing fingers, placing blame. There's got to be a silver bullet somewhere. Uh, but what you found is that it's it's really about how do we influence that behavior? So how do we do that? Yeah, that's precisely right. So we, we spent these 30 years going across the planet trying to find people that actually are doing it, people that are solving problems that you and I would think are completely insoluble, but they're doing it in a way that not only is effective and sustainable, it, it's also fairly fast. And so what we found is these influencers do three things better better than everybody else. The first is they're clearer about what they're trying to achieve and how it will be measured than anyone else. Measurement is an influence strategy. When you're conscious of how you're doing and where you stand in relationship to your goal, it affects behavior. And so that clarity and that precision around measurement is critical. In the whole nonprofit world, we screw it all up because so often we're measuring activities rather than outcomes. Right. And so then we start paying attention to activities. You know, How many of these kits have we handed out? How many people have we served? Not, have we actually solved the problem that we intended? So that's number one. Number two is they're clear about what we call the vital behaviors. There there usually are just a couple of behaviors that are most consequential in creating the change that we want. And unless you're clear on those, you end up kind of just doing big awareness campaigns. You say, let's 
have everybody be aware that, you know, there's an opioid epidemic. Well, that's not going to solve the problem. People know that their brother or sister died of an overdose. What we need to know is what are the vital behaviors that allow this pernicious problem to persist or that could help pivot it? And then the third, the last, is these people tend to understand that there are a host of sources of influence that shape human behavior. And they understand that you can't pick and choose between them. You have to get them all supporting the change. So parents who are listening today probably, you know, suffer uh, watching their children sit and play video games instead of doing their homework. Right. But few of us step back and say, all right, what are all the sources of influence in our home that make it inevitable that rather than pick up a book, they're going to pick up a joystick? And usually we design our homes to do the very thing that we don't want the kids to be doing. So these sources of influence that shape our behavior, when, when you start harnessing them in support of the change you're trying to create, change becomes almost inevitable. Yeah. All right. Let's look, let's look at some specific examples. In fact, why don't you, uh, let's let's play down with the, uh, I, I was thinking through the design of my home as you were talking about <laughs> some of those. It was like, yeah, the TV is the center point of Bingo. the room. It's yeah. the center point of the, the basement activity. And it becomes the social place too. Yeah. So we congregate there and we have social experiences. And so it becomes the magnet, of course. Yeah. Uh, so let's look at some let's look at some uh, some bigger picture uh, changes that you've uh, noted in in some of your your books and and your work. Uh, give us an, an example of of an area where the change seemed impossible, but by going through and applying these kinds of principles, change actually was. Uh, doable. Yeah. Well, one of the most remarkable to me was in Thailand. And so uh, the AIDS epidemic was raging out of control in Thailand and taking many, many lives. And and, uh, it was expected to be probably the most infected country in the world within just a few years when a guy by the name of Dr. Wiwat Rojanapathiakorn... Say that 10 times. Thank you very much. Yeah. (laughs) He came on the scene. And and, and here's the beginning of change. The beginning of change is when when somebody like him who has a a really strong pedigree in the medical sciences starts realizing this isn't ultimately just a medical science problem. It's also a social science problem. Mm. This is about human behavior. Right. And he started thinking about it that way, not just as an awareness problem, but are there a few just very vital behaviors that need to change for this epidemic to to be stemmed? And uh, not only was he successful, they reduced the number of new AIDS infections across the entire country, 60 million people changing their behavior, if you want to get your head around that, within about a year and a half. They dropped the number of new infections by 88% and then sustained that kind of change. And so that's what brought us to Thailand to say, all right, how does this guy think about that? that? Yeah. 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 How do you you even take a problem like that apart and create that kind of scale of change? And and how could that help me when I've got five teenagers, you know, or whatever else (laughs) is going on in my life? And, And he does it exactly the way we described. Number one, he started not not just measuring, you know, how many condoms have we distributed and, and so forth, but he starts to ask himself the results question. The result is, how many new infections are there? Right. And do we have a measurement strategy across the country that's calling attention to this and that's keeping our minds focused on it? Well, that took some work to say, do we have a good reporting strategy? And are we rolling this up together? Do we, know, do we know district by district? Because if you're trying to create change and you can't measure whether or not your interventions are succeeding or failing, you can't improve. Yeah. So that begins it. The second is he starts to look at the vital behaviors. Well, it turns out that, that condom use uh, is one of the biggies. Abstinence uh, before marriage is one of the biggies as well. And, and so they, they start to realize that, that because of the, uh, the, the rampant sex trade in mm-hmm. Thailand, that one of the primary vectors for transmitting the disease was through there. And so you've got many times these exploited women that are drawn into that industry uh, who are exposed to these enormous risks because the clientele, if you want to call them that, right. um, 
that that are coming in are demanding I, I, that that a condom not be used. So so the the one of the primary focuses of Dr. Wewat was to say, can we create an influence strategy that protects these women and that interrupts that transmission vehicle? And that primarily got down to them learning to have crucial conversations, yep. them being able to say no and hold a standard and hold a boundary, and also to create enforcement and accountability at the level of these of the brothels, frankly, yeah. where a lot of this activity was taking place. And so as that began to uh, to uh, become the focus, they then next move to the next step, which is how do you get all six sources of influence supporting this? How do you get social influence? How do you increase skills? How do you make sure that there's moral clarity about what's going on? How do you make sure supplies and resources and tools are available so that these behaviors can occur? So piece by piece, he iterated through this, and literally within an 18-month period of time, condom use goes up, number of new AIDS infections declines. They start also to, to interrupt this uh, uh, this permissive psychology that was uh, mm-hmm. in the environment about about the trade, and, and remarkable change happened. It's estimated that Dr. Wewat was responsible directly for helping save over 5 million lives Wow! just in Thailand, and then it began to spread to other countries. Fantastic. That's uh, It's so amazing because you, you do, you look at problems like that, and, and so often you just kind of throw up your hands and say, well, there's there's just no way we can we can move the needle on on something like that. So let's let's look at another uh, another example. Um, we we had you uh, as part of the the Deseret News. Uh, we had a, a conversation with with some high school kids uh, after uh, one of the the tragic shootings, uh, which seemed to become uh, becoming all too common here in the United States. And and it wasn't really so much about you know where do you fall on the whole gun debate and and gun laws and and that really wasn't the the emphasis. But I'd love to have you just talk through some things that we all ought to be thinking about as it relates to a, a, an issue like violence and school shootings and, and those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and, and really, one of the best ways to learn about influence is to ask the converse question. It's not how can we create change. It's why do we need to create change? What mm-hmm. what got us into the mess that we're in? Yeah. So I'll sidestep your question for a moment and come very quickly back yeah. to it. But you look, for example, at the obesity problem in the United States and uh, something that affects all of us. And and. And too often, we, we fail to ask ourselves not how do you solve the problem, but how do we get into it to begin with? Because sources of influence had to change in order for behavior to change. Right. We did this to ourselves. Yeah. We may have done it unconsciously. It could be that there are people that had an economic interest in creating the problem <laughs> and are profiting from the problem. But every one of the six sources of influence that we describe in the Influencer book had to change in order for, for eating habits to change and exercise habits to change and so forth to get us to where we are today. So now you go to the the, the problem with uh, with school shootings. I was, was going to accuse you of uh, having talked to my wife this morning because <laughs> I know the source of influence. It's called powdered donuts for breakfast. It's, it's the real is the real issue. So. She's texting me now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we appreciate the intervention. That's that's good. All right, let's get back to back to guns. School shootings are the same. Yeah. Uh, anybody who's paying any attention at all realizes this has become normative behavior. Right. So you have a subpopulation of people who are probably depressed and anxious, feeling disconnected from society. And this has become a, a new vital behavior for them, a way of, of garnering attention, of feeling validated, of feeling heard and listened yeah. to. Uh, it, it's horrific. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's despicable. But the problem is that all of us are kind of unwittingly supporting the sources of influence that are propagating this. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you one example. When you look at the six sources of influence, social norms, 
becomes one. And I and, and when something becomes I becomes popularized, uh, seems normalized, it's more likely to be adopted, particularly by somebody that's in a psychologically vulnerable place. One of the most common ways that happens is through the press. So you'll have a school shooting, and it's going to make the front headlines. We're going yeah. to obsess for an hour and a half on the morning news about it. And not only are we going to do that, we're going to name the shooter. Mm-hmm. We're going to describe the shooter's methods. We're going to describe the kind of weapons that they use. We're going to actually put up tally lists. It's almost like the NBA Finals. You're going to see the scorecard yeah. about how this person's body count relates to the previous shooters. Mm-hmm. And when you're when you're a person in that kind of psychologically vulnerable place, seeing this enormous amount of validation and attention, it's intoxicating. Yeah. So we're conspiring by organizing these sources of influence that support that. Now you can talk about access to guns as well. It's not, not a coincidence that in our country you see this more often than in countries where you have less access to guns. Mm-hmm. Is that the sole source of influence? Absolutely not. Right. But it's one of them. And we can't deny it. So when you start putting powdered white donuts on your counter <laughs> and you have a box of them in your car, are you more or less likely to eat them, Boyd? Yeah, I would have no idea. <laughs> I'll bleed the fifth on that. No. Absolutely. No, it, absolutely. It, it's what's around you. Is, access is a access. source of influence. Yeah. I mean, we, we've done little studies in collaboration with a social t- scientist named uh, Brian Wansink that show you just eat off a larger plate, you eat more food. Mm-hmm. So access matters. Yeah. All of these sources of influence, as they change piece by piece, start to create a more, a more normative kind of behavior. They create new habits in society. Yeah. And those create the problems that we lament. Uh, and, and it seems like so often that our, our natural reaction to whatever it is, whether it's powdered donuts or <laughs> or school shootings or, or whatever it may be, is that our, our instant response, particularly uh, governments or, or business response, uh, is usually to immediately try to control the behavior. Hmm. Um, so the debate, for instance, on guns immediately becomes it's it's only the access exactly. component as opposed to looking at all the points of influence. How do we how do we get beyond that? How do we get leaders beyond that so that they're not just saying, well, we just need to control behavior uh, as opposed to we have opportunities to really influence uh, and ultimately that behavior is going to be a byproduct. Yeah, I think you're precisely right about our problem. So imagine that you had a, a big giant van they got stuck in the mud and uh, and you got six people who could potentially help you get out and so you call one of them over and he pushes on the van but he fails and so you dismiss him and get the next one and the next one and the next one that's how we tend to approach problems yeah when what you really need to do is get all six of these people pushing against it simultaneously and then we can break free and so what we tend to do is we'll say for example all right let's escalate penalties let's pass a law that we're going to be tough on guns and tough on crime or whatever it is and and then what happens is that doesn't change things as a pattern so we say well that didn't work and then we try the new thing and we get flavors of the month well the problem is not not that, that changing penalties doesn't work. The problem is that it's it's insufficient and it's it's a necessary component of change. You, know, you look at how we're approaching the o- opioid epidemic and uh, we're, we're going to go beat up on the pharmaceutical companies. And perhaps there's responsibility there. Perhaps right. that ought to be examined. But if you also aren't examining the social influence of a doctor who's in a room with somebody who's saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and they sort of reflexively prescribe that again, and now I feel like I've got the, the social support of my physician to say, I, I need this, I, I need opiates yeah. uh, longer in my recovery. Unless you look at every element of this, what you end up doing is kind of squeezing one part of the balloon and the air just shifts to the next. Yeah. 
And we see that in so many different areas. Well, I want to I want to get to a real specific application. Uh, I know this has become such a driving force for you uh, and is changing so many lives in so many significant ways. And that's this magic place called the Other Side Academy, uh, which to me is the the ultimate uh, proving ground for a lot of these principles in terms of why they work. Uh, and so let's start kind of with criminal justice reform. You, you mentioned criminal justice and is it just penalties? Is it locking people up? But it, what you found is it it really it really isn't any of that, is it? Yeah, well, let's let's talk about ludicrous for a moment <laughs> if you if you want to go there. So we we we've got somebody who let's say has offended for the twenty fifth time. So the average student at the other side academy has been arrested twenty five times for the twenty fifth time. Here's the logic of our our criminal justice system right now. We say, all right, um, you've done something that society doesn't like. So what we're going to do is we're going to incarcerate you with people who are even worse than you right. for three to five years, and then we're going to release you into civil society and assume that you're not going to behave the same way again. It's 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 patently absurd. And then and then you have conversations in society that say, gosh, why are we providing things like education for people in prison, right? Or why are you providing other sorts of, you know, therapeutic options for them? We're pampering them, right? No, we're trying to influence. Right. It's it, it's called the correction system because its original mission was to correct behavior. But what we've done is designed a perfect system to help create even more skillful criminals than we had before. Yeah. And then we blame them for acquiring the education that we provided for them at great expense. We spend about as much on a um, on a person who we incarcerate in the state system as you would going to Harvard for a year. And the good news is they're getting the education that we're paying for. Right. And then we blame them when they come out. So at the Other Side Academy, what we're doing is the precise opposite. So we've got about 100 people who've been arrested an average of 25 times living in an old historic home in downtown Salt Lake City. They were they were brought there with the understanding that the government was going to provide no resources for them. Mm-hmm. So they had to learn how to support themselves. And the beauty is if you can learn to live in a healthy community and practice that for a long period of time, a very high accountability one, yeah. you're probably better prepared for living in a healthy community when you leave. And that's what the Other Side Academy is. It's a self-reliant, two-year minimum opportunity for people to examine their own moral failings, practice becoming a different human being in an environment that holds you intensely accountable for long enough that you can become a new person. Uh, it's always amazing to me to to see just the, the process there. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, we, we've talked about this before, but I, I've, I'll never forget saying in one of those city council meetings, uh, you know, as you were trying to get some uh, expansion work done, and uh, and this person bless their heart, you know, uh, a career bureaucrat of some sort or another, uh, who just could not quite wrap their head around how you could have 100 people in a facility with no guns, with no security cameras, with no ankle bracelets, uh, people who you know wouldn't last 15 minutes in prison without getting into a fight or breaking a rule, and suddenly you've got them not only not only existing but running a successful moving company and a thrift store and food trucks and all sorts of other things and and they asked you the question you know how on earth is it possible to get that kind of behavior uh, out of these awful horrible criminals and and your response was so powerful. You just said, we ask them. That's exactly right. But tell us what's underneath that. Yeah, we ask them loudly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, it, it's exactly as you're describing. So so people people marvel when they come to the Other Side Academy that here we've had this place with people that were slamming dope, that were shooting meth the day before they arrived sometimes. Yeah. And now here they are. We haven't had a single dirty drug test in three and a half years. That's amazing. It's the cleanest, most sober place probably in the entire city. We, we, we have 
men and women living together, and there's no hanky-panky. Yeah. You know, I, I'd hold it up against Brigham Young University as being one of the most chaste environments, in, again, in the entire yeah. state. It's a, it's a marvel that this happens, and the question is how? Well, the reason is because that's the norm. When you get there, the older students are so invested in this kind of an environment and want to maintain these standards that they are the ones that hold you accountable. You go to a prison and you've got guards and prisoners, and by definition, their mission statements are to oppose each other. Right. The, the, the prisoner's job is to find all the holes in the system to get away with everything I can. The guards are to catch them. And that's the game. At the other side academy, there, there's no competing roles. Mm. Everybody's job is to maintain the standards and norms. And the students, if they came to a place that had people in white lab coats, if they had people who were officials, uh, or if they had people who were responsible to fix them, they would love it because it would place no responsibility that's on them. Right. They instantly become the, the passive recipient of some services we're trying to offer. Many of the changes we try to create in society, we struggle with because we expect too little from those we're trying to help mm. rather than too much. At the Other Side Academy, on day one, the student is expected to become part of the solution rather than the problem. And so, as you say, we've got people from rival gangs. You know, I'll watch in uh, in, in games, and we can talk later about what that is, uh, and you'll have a, an African-American student sitting next to a person who has a swastika tattooed on him. And you think about the, you know, the, the life history yeah. that that just tells you about. And we have no violence. We have none of that contention there. And the reason is because from day one, you're told not to do that by the by your brothers and sisters. Yeah. I, w- I want to drill down on this this whole peer influence com- component to this. Uh, and, and for those who are, are listening to this podcast who may not be familiar with the Other Side Academy, let's let's start at the beginning. Let's let's take a, uh, a student, and I love that you call them students, mm-hmm. uh, and, and go through their journey from the moment uh, uh, someone asked me, well, how does this all start? And I said, well, they have to convince a judge that they're ready to change. I said, but that's really the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> the harder part is convincing to get in. To get in. Yeah. So, so walk us through that journey just real quickly. Yeah, it's about as tough as getting into Harvard. And so, yeah, so a student who may have been arrested is facing new charges, is in jail. They write us a letter and they'll say, you know, please, I want a chance to change my life. They'll hear from others in prison or in jail about the Other Side Academy or will occasionally go do presentations in the jails. And so they know this option's available. And so uh, they'll write the letter. We then go to jail to interview them. It's a very in-your-face interview. And the purpose of the interview is to start influencing them. It's to set up a social contract Yeah. to say, if you're coming here just to beat a sentence, stay. But if if you're coming here to change your life, this is what it's going to feel like as you do. Mm-hmm. And so it's a pretty raw in-your-face. They'll tell a little bit about their life story, and then we'll play their life story back to them. We'll let them know what a liar, a thief, a manipulator they are. You know, people think we're solving a drug problem at the Other Side Academy. We're not. We're solving a character problem. Yeah. And so if they're not willing to hear about the kind of human being they've become in their addiction and criminal journey, we can't help. But it sets up a social contract. So once they arrive, they realize that's the expectation, not just of how people will talk to you, but how you're expected to talk to your brothers and sisters. They then are, are receive an acceptance letter. They'll take that to the prosecutor and the judge. And if they can persuade them, then their, their sentence is held in abeyance for some period of time while they can stay for a minimum of two years at the Other Side Academy. And Boyd, I'll tell you, there's, uh, there's nothing more awe-inspiring than at the end of this two years going and appearing in court in front of a judge who's mystified, who's seen that same person 20 or 25 times in their courtroom and now doesn't even recognize them. Who, on behalf of the state of Utah, says you're forgiven of your outstanding crimes. Go live a good life. And so time and time again, we see that occur. But that's the entrance process. 
So once they get to the, so let's say they get uh, they get that approval from the judge, uh, then they then they come to the other side academy, which is you described as this great uh, old historic uh, mayor's mansion in Salt yeah. Lake City. Uh, uh, and I always say, what's really historic about it is is not the bricks and the wood; uh, it's what happens in the building uh, that is to me changing generations, really shifting things in a, in a significant way. Uh, tell us about this lovely place everyone calls The Bench. <laughs> What's the purpose of The Bench? So the, the, the Bench democratizes access to the possibility of change. I, and so anyone can walk in 24 hours a day and sit on the bench indicating they want to be interviewed. So if you didn't write us from jail, you could walk in off the street. And people do all the time and sit on the bench. The Other Side Academy costs nothing. And so all you have to do is show a willingness to change your life by sitting there. We'll leave you there for a while. And you'll get to see the flow of life. You'll see students coming and going. You'll see on the walls the the beliefs that we stand for. And that gives you a chance to reflect to say, am I really serious about this? Then you're going to be brought into what we call the quorum room. In the quorum room, some of the older people in the house, people that have been there a while longer than you are going to interview, it'll be the same interview that would have happened in jail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're going to test whether or not you can, you can take an emotional punch yeah. because you're going to get a lot of them as, uh, as you're hearing about yourself and whether you're really, really insistent on, on making the sacrifice it'll require to change your life. And uh, if they believe that, then you're accepted. And boy, it, it's a it, it's an overwhelming thing for me to watch as these students who were once the broken person themselves are now making a decision about saving the life wow. of somebody that's behind them. And then they'll take them downstairs to the clothing room and they'll shed all of the clothing that represented who they thought they used to be, mm-hmm. whether it was a drug dealer or whether it was a prostitute or whether it was, you know, some little gang member or something on the street. And they shed all of that and they're given humble, simple clothes as they begin their new life. Uh, it's an impressive moment. So they begin They begin there, and as you said, they're immediately part of the community, which includes jobs, assignments, tasks. Oh, yeah. I always chuckle because you can tell who the newer ones are because they're cleaning a, like a, a, a three foot by three foot <laughs> portion, you know, with a toothbrush and, you know, just the, the discipline of, of work. Describe some of the things that uh, the students go through uh, as they start to kind of break down and, and recreate. Yeah, so the phases of their experience at the Other Side Academy are freshmen, sophomore, junior, senior. So in the freshman stage, which is maybe two to four months, you're on campus all the time. Uh, some of the most difficult behaviors for our students to acquire are simply just getting up every day mm. at the same time and combing their hair and shaving and then working a full day and trying to get a along with people. Very simple things. Learning to live the same kind of routinized life that, you know, you and I and everybody else has learned to live. Uh, They call it boring. We call it normal (laughs) and happy. And so that's tough. And so we keep them on campus while that's occurring. Uh, They'll they'll work all day long and and it's a good, hard work uh, work day. The kind of transformation in the appearance of the campus that people see when they drive by the corner of 6th South and uh, and 1st East there... um, 700 east and first south. Yeah, I can find my way there. The the kinds of things that people have witnessed in uh, in physical change happen because these freshmen are caring scrupulously for the house. They're mowing the lawn. They're cleaning the yard. They're vacuuming the floor. And and so the the campus is absolutely impeccable. And that's the freshman's job to do that. As they progress, as they become sophomores, then they get called off, we call it. And you've been to that many times, Boyd. Uh, They get given jobs. And boy, it's a a glorious thing to sit there and see something. 
somebody feeling proud that they get to now wear a green shirt and go out and lift heavy objects. <laughs> you know, they might get called off to the moving company, right, or to culinary services, or to construction, or one of the other departments. But they now start to feel like they're part of the solution. The Other Side Academy runs the number one rated moving company because they grow up in this house feeling that sense of pride about what we do, and they realize it's not just about moving boxes; it's about saving lives and about serving human beings. Yeah, it's not uncommon with the moving company for them to arrive having been selected as the mover of choice because somebody saw our ratings. Then they hear the story and there's this moment of nervousness because they realize they've got a bunch of convicted felons in their house. <laughs> Guys who used to take the TV out the window. <laughs> and now they're taking it through the door. Yes, that's our motto. <laughs> they, uh, they, they, they can be a little bit nervous for a little while and then they start to experience what these students have learned about compassion and integrity and hard work and teamwork. And by the end of the move, we've had many experiences where the mom or dad in the house is saying, hey, I got to run to the store where you watch my kids. <laughs> and those kids are the safest kids in the city because that's who our students are becoming. It, it, and that is such a, a fascinating thing to watch. I think every business leader should have to go watch a move uh, by the other side movers because it is the conversations that happen there. You would you don't see that kind of conversation happen in most boardrooms and halls of Congress uh, here in the United States. It's, it's just otherworldly in terms of crucial conversation, influence, what's the desired result, how do we make it happen, listening, challenging, being honest, uh, it, it's inspiring to watch. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And the level of integrity is off the charts. Mm. Uh, I, I hadn't realized how morally mediocre I was until hanging around with a bunch of felons uh, mm. who are pushing themselves to a higher standard than I ever pushed myself to. And so, you know, we have examples time and again where a, a freshman gets called off to the moving company and now is a sophomore and is out on a move and nicks a wall and feels embarrassed about it. And so he doesn't want to admit that he nicked the wall, which is one of our standards. Uh, you're transparent about any mistake that you make. And so he'll go back home and then he'll feel dirty for a couple of weeks mm. and inevitably come into the quorum and say, you know what? I, I, I hid something a couple of weeks ago and I nicked a wall. And then we'll call that customer back two weeks after the move and say, we nicked your wall. We're going to come out and fix it or we'll pay to have it fixed. What would you like us to do? And it blows their minds. Yeah. And imagine the people that are doing this. You know, I'm capable of dealing with so much more moral mediocrity in my life. I can sleep with so <laughs> many <laughs> sins, you know, and, and here are people that are showing me a different way of living. And the reason they do that is because they're surrounded by people who help them look at themselves. Mm -hmm. Something that we rarely do for each other. That's the vital behavior at the Other Side Academy. Boy, and, and we, we need that in our homes. We need that in our communities uh, because we've, we've become accepting of all kinds of mediocrity, whether it's moral mediocrity, whether it's just our, uh, the way we treat each other. Uh, we, we've just become far too accepting of it's just, it's okay. I, I can sleep. I can drive past that person on the street or I can drive past my neighbor knowing they need help. Uh, and I can justify it in a myriad of ways that that's not my job. That's not my responsibility today. Uh, but you're, you're getting people to a, a completely different level. Um, and the success speaks for itself. I think one of the, the great things uh, we saw here locally in Utah uh, was the other side movers moving the police department uh, in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Uh, yes. Tell us about that real quick. That was a tender moment because many of our students, of course, come from Utah Valley. And uh, and so many of these officers in the, the Pleasant Grove Police Department had arrested many of our students. And we had a little lunch uh, prior to this move taking place where many of we, we invited many of those police officers over to the Other Side Academy so they could see what was happening. And to see the looks on their faces when they spotted people that they had arrested before 
for, but they had to they 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 had to struggle to recognize them because yeah. they don't even appear the same way anymore. And one by one, as they shook hands, and they had an opportunity to see that there is hope. You know, I I, I got to imagine that being a police person is uh, is a discouraging job at times. Yeah, and you kind of you know you arrest somebody and you give them a pep talk and a lecture, you throw them in jail, you hope that it's going to fix something, and, and it almost never does. But here they got to see that it does. Yeah, we see the same from judges who tear up when they have a chance to encounter somebody after they've gone through this kind of transformation. And so, you know, back back to where we started this with the, the influencer discussion. If it's possible for somebody who is so so deeply broken to become a person of such immense integrity, what else is possible for us in the world? If we can start thinking in a more careful, more systematic way about how you create change. The problem isn't that it's possible. The problem is we're incompetent. Uh, I was uh, over in Japan at this uh, G20 Interfaith Summit, and one of the the really interesting questions uh, that was raised was actually the theme of part of the conference, and that was because this change is possible, our working together to make it happen is imperative. And uh, and it all yeah. stemmed uh, from a, a great talk uh, Elder Garrett W. Gong of the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints gave uh, one of the the speeches, and he talked about just how powerful questions can be, and he he used the example of the uh, former emperor. Uh, Hirohito, and and they were dealing with all kinds of pollution problems in Tokyo. And and he asked a simple question. He said, why are there no more butterflies in my garden? And it awoke the nation to attack... What's the solution to that? And I, that happens at the Other Side Academy every day. And and you're expanding now. You've got a, a new facility in Denver. Uh, give us a quick snapshot of that, and then I want to wrap up with uh, some, some lessons and some advice from the other side. Happy to do it. Yeah, so I, about uh, three weeks ago, I, a group of our older students left Salt Lake City and uh, pioneers uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> in an exodus from Utah this time. And I went to Denver uh, to take with them what they've learned. And uh, they spent... Uh, about three weeks setting up shop, uh, starting a moving company, getting a house arranged, putting a bench in place, uh, meeting people in the jails, and getting the word out. Uh, as we speak right now, there are four students and many more on the way who have received acceptance mm. letters. And uh, it's uh, it, it's pretty wonderful to watch this happen. These are people I saw come in broken that are now out going into the jails and pulling people out mm. and helping to save their lives. And the whole, the whole goal of the Other Side Academy is that there could be a bench in every city in the world that wants one. So as students graduate from Denver and from Salt Lake City. They'll have opportunities if they choose uh, to choose whatever career they want or to continue to make some sense of their pasts by by saving lives in the future with what they've learned. And so many of them are choosing to do that. It's a special thing to see. One of the things that we've <coughs> excuse me, incorporated here at the, at the Desert News, we've, we've been able to publish a, uh, a piece. Yes, you uh, have. Advice from the other side. And, and thank uh, you. <laughs> Uh, we think these are these are great. Give us give us a quick snapshot of uh, some of the uh, great life lessons from the Other Side Academy. Oh, good heavens! Yeah, they're they're abundant. You know, in, in, integrity is one. You know, the irony that you can learn more about honesty from some of the most dishonest people in the world uh, is incredible. I, in the advice column, we'll be coming out with one on relationships. You can learn a heck of a lot out of relationships uh, by people who've destroyed more of them than most of us ever will. Right. Uh, these are people that have thought deeply about that, and as that through the Other Side Academy, they accumulate. Wisdom. We sit in uh, in circles on Tuesday and Friday nights and give feedback to each other. I, I've been, as have you, 
you in uh, in some of the elite boardrooms of the world with some of the wisest, smartest people there are. And I'd put the, the kind of advice I hear in those sacred quarters up against anything that I've ever heard in some of those circles. They get it. They understand the basics of life and that most of the significant problems we face are problems of fundamentals, not complexities. Yeah. And, uh, and so this advice column will offer advice on relationships, workplace issues, home issues, and so forth from people who have paid a price to learn these ideas. That's right. I think it was the Da Vinci quote that, that uh, caught me that the best way to learn about live bodies is to study dead ones. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think for a lot of us, we can could, we could learn a lot of lessons from what we've broken in the past. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, very good. Therefore, what? As it is, uh, therefore what, uh, that is always the final question. Uh, and so my, my question to you is people have been listening for the last uh, 25 minutes or so. They've heard some powerful examples of transformation. Uh, what's the therefore what? What do you hope people come away from listening to this program today? Uh, what do you hope they think different? What do you hope they do different? I, I, I hope that they learn to see influence as a learnable skill. Um, and, uh, and influence is complex. We're all, I, the, the, the meta message for me is that none of us really controls our behavior directly. The best way to control our behavior is to take control of the things that control us. And all of us are being shaped and influenced by the newspapers we read, by the social media we access, by the things that we don't read, by the people that we don't interact with, as well as those that we do. We're making choices about what will shape our future behavior. The lesson students learn at the Other Side Academy is that if you want to stay the person you now are, you need to take TOSA with you. You need to take the Other Side yeah. Academy with you. You need to continue to surround yourself with the sources of influence that will help you get to where you want to be. So my fondest hope is that people realize, number one, it is possible to create profound found change. And number two, the best way to do that is to see the true complexity of what shapes our choices and step up to addressing that complexity. Fantastic. Joseph, I always appreciate your insight. Thanks so much. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And make sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?